Welcome to the Further Gospel Podcast. We are all about sound doctrine for everyday people, and we're excited to have you along for another episode. If you haven't already subscribed, be sure to subscribe and follow on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and yes, even TikTok now. We are there. Uh, 500 million people on TikTok. It's a mission field we want to be in on, and I, I can tell you this to put all the rumors to rest. There are no weird dance videos on our page. It is all gospel and only gospel, and that's what we're on there for. And so you can find us there. Today, I am joined by our creative director, Justin Bond. Welcome, Justin. Hey, hey. And we have the privilege of talking with Carl Truman. Uh, I asked him before the show and before we prayed, do you want us to call you doctor, or can we just call you Carl? We're sound doctrine for everyday people. He said, hey, call me Carl. I'm only, I'm only, uh, you only, only call me doctor when I'm mad about something or some other thing. So <laughs> Carl Truman, a blessing to have you. It's great to be on, and thanks for giving me my big TikTok break. Uh, that's an unexpected <laughs> bonus. <laughs> yes. yes, we'll be featuring a Dr. Carl Truman on the TikTok account, doing a little song and dance, Englishman style. <laughs> so we're so grateful to have you. Well, um, I want to go ahead and read the title of your new book really quick to everyone. We wanted to have you on to talk about this particular topic and to break it down in simple ways because the world has gone crazy. That's not news, uh, but it's been going crazy for some time, and you have done the body of Christ, or really any, anybody from any school of thought, really, if they wanted to understand these perspectives, a great service. You've written The Rise and Triumph uh, of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. It's out by Crossway. It's a great book that will help people understand why much of what we're seeing in today's society and culture is not new. Uh, it's not something that you need to uh, have a fear of in the sense of the fear of the unknown. We can understand what's happening and where these schools of thought come from. And I wanted to jump right in, if we can, and summarize or read the summary off the bat, written in the foreword, that goes something like this, in summary of why the horrors of Soviet communism occurred, men have forgotten God. That is why all this has happened. Uh, he goes on to unpack this answer also being valid as an explanation for the crises enveloping in the West today, including the widespread falling away from faith, the disintegration of the family, the loss of communal purpose, erotomania, erasing the boundaries between male and female, and a general spirit of demonic destruction that denies the sacredness of human life. Because men have forgotten God, they have also forgotten man. That is why all of this has happened. Uh, Carl, will you expand on why you wrote the book and on what we're seeing today in the church and in society at large and why a book like this is so important? And we believe it is. Well, the, the reason there are a number of reasons why I wrote the book. Probably the, the primary one in terms of its practical implications is I was concerned really at, at how confused, disturbed, worried, shocked my Christian friends, contemporaries are by the speed of the sexual revolution. If we go back just five years to Obergefell versus Hodges, the uh, Supreme Court judgment on the gay marriage case, that's just five years ago. Yet in, in a sense, it seems a lifetime ago because 
even as that was happening, the whole transgender movement was was exploding onto the scene. And we've seen a rise of normalization of things like polyamory, uh, even BDSM. Uh, these things are starting to become mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try to help Christians understand that even though these things appear to be happening quickly, the roots uh, lie deep in the history of our culture. Really, we've got to go back several hundred years to start a story of, of why these things happened. And what we're watching now is certainly very dramatic in terms of, of how hallowed institutions or hallowed ideas are falling with with great rapidity Hmm. but the reason for that is a pressure has been building for a long long time you mentioned uh, at the start there the reason this is happening is because people have forgotten god there's a sense which yes that's true but we've been living off the capital that belief in god gave us for for several centuries and finally we've come to the end of that capital and everything is starting to to fall apart from a Christian perspective. So I wanted to write the book to to help Christians understand why what's happening makes a kind of sense, a sort of perverse sense, if you like, but makes a kind of sense, given the history of Western culture over the last three or 400 years. Uh, And would therefore, although, if you like, I, I hope people are shocked by what's happening, we shouldn't be surprised, or we shouldn't be panicked by what's happening, because as I say, it makes a kind of sense. Another aspect of that as well was I wanted to encourage Christians to think more holistically about these events. There is a connection, if you like, between internet pornography, views of abortion, gay marriage, transgenderism. All of these things tie together. They're all functions of the way we we think of ourselves, the way we intuit ourselves relative to the world around us. And I wanted to help Christians to stop addressing problems atomistically, hmm. to actually see these things as symptomatic of, of deeper and broader changes that have taken place. And thirdly, I, I wanted to, uh, and this is a sort of twist of the knife point, I suppose, I wanted to help Christians realize that actually we ourselves are complicit in a lot of the problems, hmm. that this isn't a question of us and them. That's often how the culture war presents it. It's us versus them. Actually, even modern Christianity, modern Orthodox Christianity, uh, has capitulated or, or been co-opted by some of these these trends. And that's important, I think, for Christians because it, it cultivates a sense of humility. It should enable us to avoid that pharisaical, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other oh, men. That's right. Wow. So there were those three things going on, really, in my mind. Would you be willing to unpack two things? You said we're at the end of that capital. You talked about the capital we've been living on with the belief in God. I want you to unpack that a little more for people. And then I would love for you to go a little deeper into how we are complicit in some of the ideas. But what do you mean by we had capital? Yeah, well, in in some ways, the... uh, the, the key figure here, certainly in terms of exposing what's gone on, is that the 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Hmm. Uh, Nietzsche writes this book, uh, The Gay Science. Gay has nothing to do with homosexuality. It just means ha- happy, the happy yeah. science. And in this book, he has a, a rather dramatic scene where this figure of the madman comes into a town square early one morning and confronts 
the atheists who are hanging around in the town square and, and, and says, you know, God is dead. We've killed him. Mm-hmm. And the atheists all laugh at him. And, and he says, no, no, you don't understand. We, we've killed God. Uh, and then it, it, it rather domesticates the passage to summarize it this way. But he essentially, essentially goes on to say, we've got rid of God and therefore everything changes. Everything's up for grabs. We have to become gods ourselves. Mm. There is no, there is nothing out there to which we are accountable. We ourselves have to step up to the challenge. Now, what uh, Nietzsche's doing there is, is he's calling the bluff of the Enlightenment. He's saying the Enlightenment got rid of God, but wanted to keep, broadly speaking, Christian morality. Wanted to keep, you know, the ideas of not telling lies, yeah. uh, being continent, treating other people with respect. And Nietzsche's saying, no, all of that stuff, all of the, that, that stable morality was actually grounded in God. And if you get rid of God, the madman says, it, it's like unhitching the earth from the sun. Wow. You just go spinning off into darkness. Now, Nietzsche thinks that's a great thing. He thinks this is the moment <laughs> yeah. that human beings can rise up and, <laughs> and transcend themselves. But... He's on to a really good point there. Uh, it's a point, of course, that Dostoevsky will make in his novels. It's a point that Solzhenitsyn is making in the uh, uh, the famous Harvard Address, which Rod Dreher alludes in, in the mm-hmm. foreword to my book, that when you get rid of God or when you forget God, you really have no grounds for the polite morality that mm-hmm. keeps society ticking along. Everything is up for grabs at that point. So that's the... Uh, uh, that's the idea of borrowed capital. I think you know, Nietzsche has another passage where he says, you know, after Buddha died, after the Buddha died, his shadow stayed on the walls of the cave, terrifying people for 400 years. Mm, yeah. And the point he's making there is God is dead, but we're still terrified of his shadow. We still won't mm. step up and be gods ourselves. Well, Nietzsche was writing that over 120 years ago. We're now at the point where we're stepping up to do that. And it's a rather terrifying prospect. Very good. In in terms of complicity, the example I would use is uh, I I do this with the the kids in in Grove when I'm teaching the humanities course. And I'll say to them, when was marriage redefined in the United States? And instinctively, they'll say 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges gay marriage. Uh, And I'll say, no, it was actually redefined in 1970 in the state of California when Ronald Reagan signed no-fault divorce into law. Wow. When Ronald Reagan effectively said, you can get divorced for a good reason or you can get divorced for no reason at all. What no-fault divorce does is it turns marriage into a sentimental bond for the mutual convenience of the two people contracting it. Children don't count, et cetera, et cetera. If you think of it that way, then I think the difficult question for, for us is, how many of our churches have taken no-fault divorce seriously? Incredible. How many of our churches have taken steps to deal with members who've gone through no-fault divorces? Now, wow. Marriage troubles are always difficult, and I, you know, I, I, I'm not pointing my finger at any particular person here. But to say, if you've sat lightly on the notion of no-fault divorce, if you've allowed yourself to be complicit in giving a thumbs up to that then you're complicit in that culture of expressive individualism that makes individual happiness the be-all and end-all. 
which is really one of the foundational principles of the, the chaos we see around us at the moment. So that would be a good example for me of where the church has been complicit. I could probably think of other examples, but that one pinches particularly because I think most of us, when we think of that thing, yeah, actually, me or my church, we're pretty compromised on that point. Yeah. Uh, we're complicit in this culture. Justin, for us, we so both of us are. I just turned thirty six the other day. Justin's twenty nine. Most of our team would fall in that that age range, um, and our contributors are, are older with with gray in their beards and wiser men. But what you just did is take the mind of the millennial, uh, maybe even the Gen Xers down the millennial, and all, the first thing I think of is twenty fifteen. Mm-hmm. And I don't think back to 1970 because I wasn't even a twinkle in my mother's eye yet. <laughs> and you just absolutely rewire the thinking. And then it's convicting because mm-hmm. I, in some conservative churches, of course, we, we uh, walk people through biblical divorce versus unbiblical divorces and all of that. But in the end, I have not heard really ever. You hear a lot about overturn Roe versus Wade. You hear a lot of hearkening back to things. I don't hear a lot of outcry over no-fault divorce or even the thought that when you take marriage and you give it the easy out and you look back, at it makes so much more sense. Incredible wisdom. Yeah. And uh, Carl, I had a question for you. Within the last decade and probably the last handful of years, we've seen an increase of people being more public with – them being homosexual or transgender. Um, why is the trans lifestyle, the sexual revolution, and the LGBTQ culture that we're seeing everywhere, why is it so explosive today? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, uh, that's a long, it takes me 400 pages to tell that story. That's, <laughs> a, that's a big question. But I, I would point to a couple of things, I think, that, that sort of lie in the immediate background. One of them is uh, really at the last hundred years, really since Freud, uh, the West has come to conceive of sexual desire as fundamental to our identity. One of the things I say to the students is, you know, you'll, you'll hear this said, you know, and you hear it said by, by gay people, you know, there was homosexuality in ancient Greece. I, I did classics at university. Yeah, there's a lot of homosexuality in ancient Greece, but, but no ancient Greek defined themselves by their sexual desire. Hmm. They didn't think of wow. themselves as gay. They were men who engaged in homosexual activity. Homosexuality was something they did. With Freud, you get the idea that our sexual desire is actually fundamental to our identity. Wow. And that's important because it means that that language about being gay can kind of make sense and come to grip the imagination at that point. Uh, uh, and this is why you know, sometimes Christians will say, we don't approve homosexuality, but we don't approve of greed either. But Greed is not typically how we identify ourselves. Mm. You know, society doesn't press greed as an identity category upon us. Mm. Uh, so I think that the the idea of sex as identity, the emergence of that in the last century is very important. And following on from that, of course, as soon as you make sexual desire uh, a matter of your identity, then restrictions on sexual behavior take on a singular importance. They become oppressive. So if you are somebody who, you know, I think the, the, the parlance we use in the church often now is if you struggle with same-sex attraction, uh, the church telling you that's wrong and you mustn't indulge in that is effectively saying to you, you cannot be who you are. 
You must change your identity. And that's a, a huge thing. That's not like saying to the greedy man, you need to be more generous with your money. Or to the angry man, you need to control your temper more. In, in neither of those cases uh, is that person hearing, because of the sort of cultural framework they're working, are they hearing, you need not to be you, but to be somebody completely different. Uh, it, with the case of, uh, of, of sexuality, it's become an identity issue. And that gives it significant political importance. And that, of course, is, is how it plays out then in the political sphere. Really emerges in the late 1960s, the student rebellions of 1968, etc., where very clearly political liberation gets linked to sexual liberation and sets up the play for really what the world in which we are, we are living today. Also, of course, sets up the play for religious freedom and freedom of speech coming under huge pressure. Mm. It's one thing for uh, religion to uh, to object to certain behaviours. Mm. You know, society can tolerate that. When it comes to objecting to somebody's identity, mm. that is seen as a much more socially subversive and dangerous thing. And that's why you know, all of a sudden we're finding freedom of speech and freedom of religion that 30 years ago, Bill Clinton was signing legislation on these things to safeguard them because they were seen as being goods for the Commonwealth uh, and now being seen as, as bad things because this identity issue changes changes everything. Uh, the other side of the answer, of course, to that is why is exploding highly organized political lobbying as well, mm. strong communities that have advocated strongly uh, for their, their position in a culture that is naturally sympathetic towards the victims and the marginalized and the oppressed. Uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant sort of political organizational tale as well. Mm. And yeah. off of that too, like you, you start to see cartoons starting to include this and TV yeah. shows and commercials and the culture is just embracing this. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on the local church and now all of a sudden we have Christians who are identifying mm -hmm. as gay, trans, homosexual. Um, how would you, what advice would you give to um, members of a local church and even pastors who are finding themselves in conversations with people who are calling themselves Christians, but also trying to identify in these manner? Yeah, that's very hard. And and again, you know, I was a pastor myself for some years, not a very good one, I don't think. So I hesitate to give sort of definitive advice to any other pastor. But one thing that I did learn as a pastor was every situation is unique. So it's very difficult to say, here is the, you know, you pull the lever and, and, and this is the answer. But I would say a couple of things should be borne in mind in any engagement with somebody like that. First of all, above all, you've, you've got to bear in mind you're dealing with a human being made in the image of God here mm -hmm. uh, and somebody who's as fallen as you are. So I, I think that should automatically uh, give you a natural uh, sympathy for that person as they struggle with their issues, as you're inevitably struggling with yours. Secondly, I think you need to make a, a sort of flowing from the first, uh, then a clear distinction. Uh, uh, there's a clear distinction in my mind between uh, the LGBTQ plus movement as a political movement, as an ideology, and individuals who are struggling with that as their particular issue. Mm. And I say we give no quarter to the former and we give much compassion 
mm. to the individuals in the latter. And that means, yeah, I, I think quite often what happens is we, we get those two confused. So our compassion for the individual leads us to change our ethics because we don't want to hurt the individual mm. or our dislike uh, and opposition to the ideology makes us harsh and unfeeling towards mm. the individual that's so sort helpful. Of caught up in this it's and it's hard yeah. yeah it's hard to maintain that distinction mm. and the person you're talking to may not grant that it's even a legitimate distinction which can make it tough mm. but i think you need to bear that in mind and then i think the 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 approach can only take place within the within the broader context of a friendship or a relationship of some mm-hmm. kind. Uh, I think the the paradigmatic case of uh, the conversion of, of a lesbian to Christianity is, of course, Rosaria Butterfield. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about her story is that it, it took place within the context of a friendship. Yeah. She'd had plenty of angry letters from Christian pastors <laughs> telling her she was a sinner and needed to repent. She had one letter from a Christian pastor who invited her for a meal. Mm. And he and his wife struck up a friendship and were careful not to not to compromise their views, but not to you know, make them a barrier to a friendship. Mm. And, and as difficult as it is, is I think uh, it's it's in the context of a personal relationship that you're able to to speak these truths ultimately. And that's not easy, that's not hard. It's something we need to pray for supernatural wisdom for. And it could take many years. It may never bear any fruit. But I think the that combination of holding holding fast to the truth while yet doing it in the context of a loving and compassionate relationship that may look different for different people in different places at different times. That, I think, has to be uh, part of the, the answer to, to the question you've asked. Well, you said you, you weren't a very good pastor. You probably didn't make a very good one. But, Carl, that's a great answer. And I think that's so helpful for many of us who are in the, the trenches in local church ministry and, um, and trying to discern when to, you know, quote, unquote, let it fly. And, and we're in an era where, especially in conservative circles, sort of a, a, a renaissance or a, a rejuvenating look at preaching. Everyone wants to be a preacher now, and we love the reformers, and everybody wants to be John Knox and, you know, give me Scotland or, or I die, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Well, in the end, you're, you're not always going to sit in your office and roar like a reformer at you know the Rosaria Butterfield sitting on the the chair there you you need to be pastoral and you convey the balance in that so well so thank you i a few things you said are really got me thinking and so i'll try to stay under control here with the barrage of questions but um first things first what happens in your view and give us some insight and wisdom on what will happen if we continue to or do lose our freedom of speech, freedom of religion, because these issues have now become an identity and we're no longer just differing on moral ethics, but we're actually saying, people think that we're saying they're less human or they're not who they are. What happens if we lose religion and speech? Freedom. It's, you know, I, I, my get out here is always say, I'm a historian. I explain how we got here. I've no idea where we're going to. Uh, so everything I say now is is just speculative. Yeah. My own my own thought is that uh, we're unlikely to see the kind of uh, totalitarianism 
that was witnessed in, in Russia uh, under the Soviet Union or, or even in China to some extent today relative to religion. I, I don't think in America that's coming anytime soon. I could be wrong. I, I mean, one should never say it can never happen here because it, it could. But I, I think America has pretty robust democratic institutions. I mean, one of the remarkable things of the last election is it's actually proved positive in many ways that democracy still sort of works here. Mm -hmm. uh, there, is, uh, there is significant interest in the democratic process. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think we're going to see the sort of Stalinist dictator kind of approach. More likely, I think, is that which Rod Dreher is pointing to in his more recent work, uh, Live Not By Lies, the sort of soft totalitarianism, mm -hmm. which really involves a kind of uh, unpleasant and uncomfortable marginalization of, I think, traditional conservative voices. And I include within those traditional conservative Christian voices. So I expect you see this already in some of the language being used. Uh, when, when people start talking about uh, freedom of religion as freedom of worship rather than freedom of exercise, mm. that's an interesting linguistic shift mm. because freedom of exercise means, hey, I can be a Christian seven days a week and go to worship on a Sunday. Freedom of worship has that feeling about it that you can do what you want in your church on a Sunday, but it better not spill out into the workplace on a Monday yeah. morning or you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. So I, I, I think we could start to see, or we are seeing, you know, restrictions like that coming in. It's going to be harder to be a mainstream functioning member of society if one holds consistently and acts consistently on Christian convictions uh, it's going to you know transgenderism uh, you know, it's come to the local schools uh, it's it's come to businesses uh, it's come to sports that's something you know on one level we could say gay marriage well you know as a Christian I disagree with it but you know, if there's a gay couple living next door to me to quote Thomas Jefferson it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg mm -hmm. it doesn't have an immediate impact on the way I live my life transgenderism could have a very immediate impact on the way I live my life Yeah. Uh, in terms of everything from bathroom policy to sports onwards. So I suspect that's where we're going to see uh, marginalization coming. Having yeah. said that, I don't want to be a total pessimist here. I do <laughs> think that, uh, you know, the only way you can tell uh, whether a society gets more extreme or pulls back is whether it does one or the other. Maybe we'll pull back. And I'm, I think of the transgender issue. Transgenderism is taking on so many political interests, as well as you know, the basics of nature itself, that we could see in 30, 40 years' time, for example, lawsuits being brought by kids today who were used as chemistry experiments by their, by their trendy parents. They sue their parents, they sue the doctors, they sue the insurance companies. Wow. And I, I think that transgenderism may actually be an overreach. So on that front, we could see we could see something of a reversal. Tragically, it will involve incalculable human suffering mm, yeah. before that comes about. Yeah. But I do think there are, there are possibilities that aspects of this revolution may go into reverse at some point. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Carl Truman, historian, author, and prophet as well. Um, Carl, no, that's that's really well said. I think everything you're describing actually makes sense. There's a logic to what you're you're saying, and I know it, it, 
it just personal thoughts. But um, if we were sitting in a private room with you know no microphones and no recording, I think all of that would make sense. And here, I'm so glad people can hear that because. Um, there's a lot of theory out there. Of course, everybody gives their opinion, and, and we have the armchair theologian, historian, prophets on Twitter now and everywhere else who all have great prediction powers, apparently, to tell us the way society is and going to be. And I think what you've painted is another thing that people don't often think of, is um, there is an element in 20, 30 years of replay where these things may come back to be open doors or opportunities to reach people, to care for people, for God to change hearts and change minds, um, as you stated. So another um, sort of political question, but not anything that I don't think you you couldn't handle. The, the element of lobbying, you talked about the rise or explosive rise of the trans community and the LGBTQ community involved in that as well, of lobbying government and some of that. Do you think that there is any use still um, for Christians, for the church, to use lobbying and to try their best to be involved in the democratic process in order to stay the, the, the tsunami, if you will, of postmodern, post-Christian thought? Absolutely. Uh, one thing I learned, I, I had the privilege of spending a year at Princeton University to work on my book and uh, on a program run by Robbie George, the, the professor of jurisprudence at Princeton. And what struck me about Robbie was we'd have the group of us, the fellows would have coffee with him each week. and Typically something disastrous had happened in the culture. And Robbie's response was, was OK, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? How are we going to build networks? How are we going to respond to this? And never in a kind of you know, let's grab our machine guns and storm Congress kind of work. Yeah. It's always in a, how do we work within the great American system to, to make sure our voices are heard? It may ultimately prove a futile thing, but we have these democratic processes. Let's use them. I'm uh, uh, yeah, currently uh, connecting with the Heritage Foundation in D.C. Uh, to do some work on transgender stuff. Uh it seems to me that groups like that, 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 that aren't distinctively Christian, mm-hmm. but where Christians, conservative Jews, conservative you know, atheists, conservative yeah. Muslims may have some common concern uh, on, on social issues. I, I think it's, it's good to have groups like that working. I mean, the alternative is we just give up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we've got these silly websites where you have sort of 40 theonomists screaming and shouting about transforming the culture. That's not going to transform the culture. You know, we, we need to be working. We need to be working, uh, working the angles within within a democratic society. And uh, I think we need to try to be persuasive as well. I've uh, I've become convinced over the last year or two that the whole idiom of culture war is is probably the wrong idiom. Mm. because it's not persuasive. I, I teach kids at Grove City College, many of whom come from good Christian homes and are Christians themselves, but the martial language of culture war isn't persuasive even to them as Christians. Mm. And I think we need as we, we need to be thinking about persuasion. If we've got the truth, it really should be powerful and persuasive in some way. Amen. So I would say, yes, Christians should be involved. I want to see Christians 
going into Congress. I want to see Christians writing good books. I want to see Christians doing podcasts like yours, where thoughtful engagement with uh, with the culture is is taking place. None of this may succeed, but I don't I don't want to go to heaven at the end and say, you know, Lord. The world was going to hell in a handcart, and I was very angry about yeah. it and shouted about it on the internet an awful yeah. lot. Yeah. But I never did anything kind to try to persuade my neighbor that my view of the world is a good one. I was not involved in my community. Uh, I, I do think that all Christians should be engaged in some level that uh, at showing the truth of Christ in, in whichever way they can, and that can come through the democratic process. As well as helping my neighbor change his tire uh, if he's got a puncture. Well, speaking of Christians being engaged in reading books, um, our audience is always looking to understand concepts and then apply those concepts to sharing the gospel, living out the gospel. So, Carl, how would a book like yours help someone be more inspired in their gospel witness? Or be more effective in reaching the world around them. Sure. Well, it's—I mean—it's a chunky book, and uh, I, I am actually going to be producing an abbreviation, which may be easier for people to read. Uh, but I would say the—the the thing I was trying to do in my book was help clarify in in Christian minds exactly what's going on around them, mm. to see connections and to realize, for example, that you know in discussing homosexuality with a gay person. The Christian may think they're talking about behavior. The gay person thinks they're talking thinks you're talking about identity. Identity. So right. it was it was help I wanted to help people to just to clarify the way the world thinks about itself. The gospel is the gospel. Uh, and the gospel only has power because of it's accompanied by God's spirit. Amen. Uh, but there is a sense in which we we do need to address the gospel to people where they are. Yeah. When I preach in Western Pennsylvania, I don't preach in Latin. I preach in English because that's right. Understand English. Mm. And I think there are ways we can we can think about the gospel and present the gospel without compromising it, which actually address some of the serious questions that people are asking. And to understand those questions, to know what those questions are, requires us to really understand the logic of the culture mm. that has produced them, produced us. So I would hope that my book will, will inform people in, in clarifying the logic of the culture around them to allow them to address the eternal unchanging gospel uh, to the specific context in which they find themselves. That's tremendous, tremendous wisdom. And what I, what I really love about your book is that we oftentimes think that this is something that just sprung up out of nowhere in our culture. But in your book, you, you say, this isn't a new idea. This is something that's been reinvented from decades ago and, and palatable for the culture today. Yes. Uh, it's been a long time coming. The idea that, uh, we are primarily what we are inside our heads, hmm. that our feelings determine who we are. That goes way back to Rousseau and the Romantics. The idea that those feelings are primarily sexual, that's Freud. Uh, the idea that that then plays directly into our identity and into politics, that emerges in the 20th century. The, the story of human sin could have been told in a different way. It didn't have to be this way. Every, every era has its sinful manifestations, its sinful way of thinking. But this is the way our era thinks. And what we're seeing now is more and more practical.
practical outworking of those basic shifts and changes. Remarkable. Well, Carl, I can't thank you enough. I Again, a 400-page book, but you have made it simple to understand. And honestly, when the abridged or shorter version comes out as well, we want to give copies of that away on our podcast, and we certainly will. The episode today, we're also going to give uh, some copies away this week on social media of the book. And uh, where can people learn more about your work or get more from you? Well, I do the, the weekly podcast that we had the pleasure of having you on some time yeah. ago, Mortification of Spin. If you just type Mortification of Spin into a search engine, you'll, you'll find it. Um, uh, I do a lot of my writing on these kind of themes at First Things. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you look up the online, it's actually a print magazine as well, but there's an online webpage, firstthings.com. Uh, that will, uh, I write there every couple of weeks and also at Public Discourse. And if I can give a plug for first things in public discourse, I would say yeah. every Christian should subscribe to their email blast. Public discourse, it's not always, you know, they're not distinctively Christian articles, but they're always thoughtful mm. ones addressing issues that are of concern to Christians. And if you want to be informed in a world of, of noise and media bias on both sides, if you want some dispassionate, conservative, thoughtful, uh, commentary on today's world, public discourse, and first things. I would, I would recommend not just because I write for them, uh, but because they 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 have a stable of writers who are engaging these these issues in a in a courteous, mannerly, but but solid kind of way. Wonderful. I think of Paul the Apostle as you're describing that and the way that he was able in different contexts to dialogue with different audiences, ask different questions and reason. And really that would, I want to echo Carl's encouragement, go ahead and subscribe uh, on first things in public discourse and get an idea of the way people are thinking in the communities around you and in different uh, worldviews and thought patterns. Because if at the very least uh, you don't agree, you now have the ability to ask questions and thoughtful intellectual questions to trigger conversation and lead that into sharing the gospel Mm -hmm. and understanding what is inside of a person's head. Uh, Carl, thank you. Thank you again. We'll certainly have you on again in the future. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure to, to get together with you guys. Awesome. Well, Justin, thanks for your insights, your questions being here. Uh, This week, again, we're giving away Dr. Truman's book on social media, so stay up to date there. Be sure to follow, subscribe, and share this episode and what is happening on social media. And as well, check out the podcast on platforms like Apple, Spotify, or wherever you do your podcasting. And we're on YouTube as well. And don't forget TikTok. I still haven't convinced Carl to do any type of uh, video for us, but we're going to work on him. And we'll see if we can get him to more on the For the Gospel podcast next week. Thank you for listening today.